This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. We're going to go back in time for a minute. It's 1944. Ernest Hemingway was one of the first allies to enter a newly liberated Paris after the Nazi occupation. He drove straight to the Ritz-Carlton, where he liberated the bar of 51 dry martinis. Afterwards, he went to visit his old friend Pablo Picasso. But Picasso wasn't in, and the concierge didn't recognize Hemingway. She assumed he was a fan and asked him if he would like to leave a gift for Picasso. Hemingway apparently thought this was very funny. He went to his Jeep and came back with a case signed to Picasso from Hemingway. The concierge opened it. Hemingway was sufficiently pleased with the look of shock on her face. The case he gave her was filled with live hand grenades. There isn't much documented about the particular exchanges between these two men. They loved watching the bullfights in Spain. They drank in the same bars in Paris, Venice, and New York. But when it came to war, the men involved themselves very differently. Hemingway was a war correspondent. He stormed full force into the fray, believing the only way to understand war was to be in it. Meanwhile, Picasso expressed his opposition in the cold gray hues and the disfigured bodies of his masterpiece, Guernica. It became one of the most famous anti-war paintings of all time. Knowing how Picasso felt, I wonder if he ever sent Hemingway a gift in response to the live grenades. A teasing rebuttal an assertion that he, Pablo Picasso, is not a soldier, but an artist. There's an organization called the Hemingway Letters Project that keeps an archive of letters to and from Ernest Hemingway. Sandra Spanier is the general editor, and we asked her if she could find any communication between Hemingway and Picasso. She responded in an email. We are aware of only one postcard from Picasso to Hemingway and three postcards from Hemingway to Picasso. Honestly, it didn't sound like much. The postcards were brief. If these guys were giving each other gifts, wouldn't there be more evidence? I read through the excerpts she sent us, and then I saw something, something that made me stop dead in my tracks. In Spanish, the writing on the postcard simply says, Para Hemingway, para siempre. To Hemingway, forever. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. 
Chapter 5, The Equation. I said in the beginning of the show that I wasn't the first person to try to tackle the story of Steve Coe. In 2014, the reporter Joe Flood agreed to go on a road trip with Steve and Fred and Betty. But when Joe arrived in Iowa to meet Steve, he found out another writer was already on the case. In fact, Steve was living with him. His name was Dennis Doderer, and they'd been friends since college. Joe couldn't tell if they loved or hated each other. They were sort of like an old married couple, if the old married couple had all been Division I athletes who still, you know, <laughs> were still intent on beating each other up. Dennis and Steve met at Michigan State. Dennis was a wrestler for the school. He and Steve were roommates. And he talked about Steve in the way you talk about a friend you know just too much about. My producer, Pallavi, got to talk to Dennis on the phone. He's still living in Iowa, though he's not in the best health these days. What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm still here. He couldn't leave his house to record, but he still wanted to talk to us about his friend. There's clearly boatloads of love and an equal amount of exasperation. He went through all these bad health things and a bunch of bad hangovers that never seemed to affect his good looks. And that's what used to piss me off about Steve. Dennis knew that Steve was a heavy drinker. Steve's a pain in the ass when he's drinking. There's no doubt about it. He's got an alcohol problem, but he's charming enough he can get away with a lot of shit that average or even a normal good-looking guy can't get away with. Over the decades after college, Dennis heard all about Steve's adventures, how he was a part-time pro football player and a part-time drug smuggler. You know, you add his good looks and the confidence that comes with it, and I think you're kind of halfway towards a pretty interesting character. While Steve was trying his hand at football and drug smuggling, Dennis had been trying to make inroads into Hollywood. He auditioned for roles and learned how to write screenplays. And after being friends with Steve for decades, he figured he was just the person to make a movie about Steve's life. So he and Steve made a plan. In 2013, they decided to move Steve up to Iowa to live with Dennis. Then they'd work together to write the Steve Coe screenplay. So it, it, we, we would start working on, on the project at my house. It was an ambitious plan, especially for two old friends who bickered nonstop and one who was drunk all the time. And Steve truly believed that he had to be drunk to, uh, to write. And I said, you are drunk when you experienced all this stuff, but you don't need to be drunk to write Steve lived with Dennis for a whole year in Iowa, but they got virtually nothing done. Dennis blamed Steve's drinking, but Steve put the blame on Dennis. He started shopping around for other writers, including an old friend, Tom Murphy. And this fucking Murphy, uh, Murphy Sir, Tom Murphy, he started blabbing Steve's shit all over Hollywood. I told Steve, I said, Look, if, if I'm going to write this screenplay, uh, I'm going to be the one writing. Steve didn't listen to Dennis. He went to a couple of other Hollywood folks, 
who set him up with some pretty big names. And one of the biggest was Leonardo DiCaprio. He was going to look at a guy like Leonardo DiCaprio and say, I don't see him playing me. And so he goes, Leo, get me a cocktail, you know. And people say, oh, that's, that's Leonardo DiCaprio. You can't treat him like that. He says, I need a cocktail. There are a couple of stories like this. Steve offended producers left and right. Once, he apparently tackled an exec. He even messed up his chance with Dennis. Could have sold your story 20 years ago. And I think he'd fuck things up if you want to do it. Dennis decided to cut his losses. He spent so much time and so much of his own money on making this movie. But he couldn't work with Steve anymore. So now it was Joe's turn to try. Steve recognized that this might be his last chance to get his story out there. His final Hail Mary. But even with everything on the line, Steve just couldn't get it together. Steve spent like, you know, three decades as a professional inebriated driver. <laughs> Listen, the bottom line is this. You know, I'm you know, drinking happily. He's got to drive, you know, even though he's like two, three drinks in or something like that. That kind of became the story of the trip. Joe couldn't convince Steve to let him drive, so he just curled up in the back seat. But he had good company back there. I was with Fred and Betty, I think, mostly the whole time. Certainly when we were on the road, on the road, I was in charge of, uh, you know, security. Eventually, they found themselves in South Florida. And as they approached their destination... Miami seemed to welcome them in. What a beautiful skyline. What a, the best in the world, right? Maybe Hong Kong a little better, but and she rises right up out of the water. They parked right in front of some of Steve's favorite bars, and Joe said that people started coming up to Steve right away. Is when he walked into these old these bars, these yeah, pirate bars, he called them, in Miami. And all these people, you know, just, you know, so everybody's standing around Steve and slapping him on the back and buying him a drink and, oh, wow. And you tell him, um, I'm writing a story about him, you know, for a magazine. He's oh, is it about, is it about the Picasso? You know, and then they'd start telling all these old Steve stories. They just wanted it. Steve's five feet away and they want to tell you about all the good times they had with Steve. They want to, you know, catch a little reflected glow in this way. It was here where Joe began to really get an idea of what it must have been like to know Steve in his prime. Steve was a legend in his own mind, but in Miami, among his pirate buddies, he was a legend in their eyes too. Which was interesting, and maybe even fun. But these stories weren't getting Joe any closer to the truth about Fred and Betty. But then, Steve came through in a big way, with an introduction to Alfredo Carbonell. He was born into an affluent family, a business family in Cuba, that, like a lot of affluent families, left Cuba after the Castro Revolution. One of the things Alfredo's family left behind was this beach house. There was an addition to the beach house, which was Fred and Betty, the way he told it. They, they hung on the wall. Alfredo's grandfather, Armando Pajaro Yamaro, was the president of the Havana Stock Exchange. He ran in similar circles with the Hemingways. 
He even got Hemingway's oldest son, Jack, a job. According to Alfredo, Hemingway gave his grandfather a gift. And that gift was Fred and Betty. After the revolution, the Carbonells fled Cuba, leaving most of their possessions behind. You know, he talked about how it was just lost, these objects that were just gone from his life and that he couldn't reconnect with. And then decades, decades later, Steve tracked him down. This was almost 10 years before Joe spoke with Alfredo on the phone. He told Joe that when Steve showed him the piece, it was the first time he'd seen it in decades. It is like his mind was blown. I said, and I thought this thing was gone forever. You know, you sort of brought it back to me, back to, back to the world, back to life. He said, you know, my family has no claim to this. We had it last before the revolution, but it was a gift to us. And Steve's the one who brought it back to the world. So let's take a beat. If our story is true, if Picasso gifted Fred and Betty to Hemingway, who then gifted it to Armando, Alfredo would be the last person who had any claim on the piece. But he didn't even want it. According to Joe, Alfredo was just a guy who was happy to see Fred and Betty one last time. Other people in Steve's story wanted money. Alfredo asked for nothing. It just didn't seem like the kind of person who'd be making it up, <laughs> particularly not such an intricate, complicated story. Yeah, it certainly sounded like a, a truthful telling. We tried reaching out to Alfredo Carbonell, but we couldn't get in touch with him. His family didn't respond to our inquiries. So what we have are Joe's impressions of Alfredo. At first, it seemed like Steve was repeating the same mistakes that cost him a Hollywood deal. He picked fights with Joe, and he drank too much. But now, they were getting somewhere. Joe could place Fred and Betty in Cuba with a friend of Hemingway's. So sure, Steve drove drunk all the way from Iowa to Miami. But he'd gotten them there, hadn't he? He was a wild card. But maybe Steve Coe could actually get this thing to the finish line. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In order to sell Fred and Betty, Steve needed to establish the piece's provenance. Provenance is the history of ownership that a piece has had, tracing it back to the original source, the artist. 
and Steve couldn't sell Fred and Betty without it. We spoke with Eileen Kinsella, senior market reporter at Artnet News. I've been working at sort of the intersection of the art world and money, the art market, for a little over 20 years now. Eileen's beat is art sales. She follows when things sell big and when they don't. Like people always say, you know, a stock on any given day, you know where an equity is trading on the New York Stock Exchange. Art is so much more subjective because it's more of a formula that goes into it where it's condition of the work, it's the rarity, it's the provenance, which is, you know, the history of past ownership. So you have all of those things as an equation. The Picasso administration, which manages the Picasso estate, created a pretty streamlined way of authenticating a piece. You send all your proof, provenance included, and a few images of the piece to Claude Picasso, Picasso's youngest son, who eventually will say whether or not it's a true Picasso. In Picasso's case, because he's so revered, he was the first person to like break the plane and make Cubist pictures, plus this huge volume of works that makes it easy to value. Picasso paintings, ceramics, and sculptures all have a roughly fixed value. This makes things a little bit easier for auction houses and dealers, and it makes them more attractive for buyers. A Picasso piece isn't just a nice thing to look at. It's an investment. But Steve couldn't prove the trail from Picasso to Hemingway to Alfredo Carbonell. He had a story for the bars, but he didn't have a story for Claude Picasso. Without that provenance, Fred and Betty was a blank check Steve couldn't cash. This wouldn't have been a problem if the Medellin cartel still existed and Steve could sell the piece back to his black market connections. They were already using Fred and Betty as currency. They didn't need any proof of authenticity. Our economy is overseen by a few regulatory boards, like the Federal Reserve or the Comptroller of the Currency. They make sure nothing is being manipulated. But in the black market, there is no regulation from on high. Because of the way money is acquired, theft, blackmail, other illicit activity, prices are subjective. People do say criminals sometimes exchange paintings, even if they're not marketable or sellable, because it's some form of power, you know, some form of like having leverage, whether it's to get the police to let a criminal out of jail or to give to another person that you owe $10 million for drug money. We saw this happen with Steve and those Dutch paintings from the Detroit Museum of Art. The government used them as collateral to try to get criminal names. This is an important distinction. In the black market, value comes from what you can leverage. $10 million could mean 10 million real dollars. Or it could mean 100 million counterfeit bills. Or $20 million worth of stolen shoes. 100 kilos of cocaine. Maybe even one alleged Picasso. But all those avenues were now closed to Steve. Without the cartel, he had to sell Fred and Betty on the up and up which meant he needed to prove that the piece and the story behind it was real. He needed to establish its provenance. Let's go back to the beginning of the episode, to that postcard that made my heart stop. The one that said, para Hemingway, para siempre. To Hemingway, forever. 
We reached out to the owner of the card, Ricardo Bernard and his son, Justin. Ricardo did business in Cuba for 22 years, starting in the 80s. 1989, the government was buying from the Cubans anything that they could be valuable. Art, cars, machinery. A lot of art was being circulated by the government, and businessmen like Ricardo saw an opportunity. So I started buying any art that I liked it. So I bought, you know, around 220 paintings. That's how he came across these postcards. I bought it from a fellow I used to live close to me. They brought it over. They look old. They look good. We saw a picture of the card. It's covered in stains. Maybe it's water damage. Though, honestly, it could be wine. It has a little portrait of a woman in the top right corner, presumably drawn by Picasso. The front of the card is a photo of a bullfighter. It's part of a collection of several cards, all dated on the same day from Picasso, September 12th, 1954. 1954 was an exceptionally important year for Hemingway. In January, he and his wife Mary survived back-to-back plane crashes in Uganda. As they tried to find their way out of the bush, the media reported their deaths. Eventually, they found their way to a village. They both had horrific injuries. Hemingway would be in pain from the incident for the rest of his life. That same year, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. The ceremony was in Stockholm. Hemingway's injuries prevented him from attending, but he celebrated the honor from his beloved Cuba. So 1954 makes sense as a year when Hemingway might have received a note or a gift from his friend Picasso. Not to mention... Around that time, Picasso had moved to Valerie's France, and he developed a relationship with the famous Madura Pottery Studio. He was producing a vast array of ceramics, and he definitely had access to the materials he would need to make a gift for a friend. Because of the revolution, establishing provenance with these letters would be next to impossible. But Ricardo did share these postcards with Sandra Spanier at the Hemingway Letters Project and she felt them real enough to include them in the scholarly archive. So, because of Ricardo, we know for a fact that these postcards were in Cuba at some point. History isn't technically provenance. This postcard doesn't tell us the specific path that Fred and Betty took between owners. But the postcard does tell us when Picasso was writing Hemingway. And the year gives us a credible reason why. Before now, we had no proof of an exchange like this. And it makes it all seem a lot more possible. Steve was desperate to prove this connection between Hemingway and Picasso. He knew it was the only way he could cash in. In 2012, a friend of Steve's found this book called Hemingway's Cuban Son. It was written by a man named Rene Villarreal about his time as the major domo or chief steward of Hemingway's Finca Vigia. Rene was probably the most important person Steve could have tracked down. 
If Rene could say that he saw Fred and Betty while he was working closely with Hemingway in the Finca, it would be a game changer. He sent Steve a video of him reacting to a photo of the piece. In the video, Rene looks at a picture of Fred and Betty. He seemed to recognize it immediately. And he even knew where Hemingway had kept it in his house. Rene is saying the piece was often wrapped in a bullfighter's cloak. Apparently, one that the famous American bullfighter Sidney Franklin had given Hemingway. But Hemingway didn't display the piece often at the Finca. Instead, he'd put it in a drawer in the living room. In addition to his video testimony, Rene signed an affidavit stating that not only did he see this piece in the Finca, but he saw Hemingway show it off to multiple people, calling it his Picasso. Rene has passed away since he and Steve spoke, but he's still widely known in Hemingway circles. We wanted to hear from the Hemingways themselves and what they had to say about Renee's confirmation of the piece. We tried to connect with someone from the Hemingway family for weeks. Finally, we found Colette Hemingway and got her on the phone. I am married to Sean Hemingway, who is the son of Gregory Hemingway, the youngest of three sons of Ernest Hemingway. Colette Hemingway is an expert in art history and has written extensively about Hemingway's art collection. In fact, she told us she's worked with René before to mine his memory on artwork in the Finca. He may have been elderly in age, but his memory was really intact. Colette has a soft spot for René. She remembered this one time she worked with the Finca to bring one of its pieces to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was one of Hemingway's favorites, Nero's The Farm. She helped arrange a visit for René so he could see the painting once again. René had not seen this painting since it hung in the dining room at the Finca. And the look in his eyes when he saw that painting, the smile, the tears, and all the um, memories that he spoke of came back. Colette had never heard of Fred and Betty. And she was skeptical of this gangster, Steve Coe. But she trusted René. She watched his video and read his affidavit. The way he described how it was carefully placed in the middle drawer of the shelves and bureau, and I know exactly where that is in the living room, would not be impossible. According to René, Hemingway showed Fred and Betty to at least three people. His lover, Adriana Ivancic, Maito Manacal, the son of Cuba's second president, and a man named Lee Samuels, an American businessman. Colette spoke to Patrick Hemingway, Hemingway's last living son. And I did speak with Patrick about the tile and Mr. Samuels and the connection there, who was a neighbor at the time that he lived in Cuba. He did work for the Havana Stock Exchange. According to Rene, Samuels apparently introduced Hemingway to this Havana Stock Exchange man. The president, in fact. 
Renee said he'd come over to swim in the pool or stay for lunch. And he remembers that Hemingway gave Fred and Betty to this man as a gift sometime in the 1950s. That man was Armando Pajaro y Amaro, Alfredo Carbonell's grandfather. He did, according to Patrick, arrange for a job for Jack at one point. And so it was not inconceivable that Hemingway gave him something as a gift. The fact that it was wrapped in Sidney Franklin's cape, I don't know that to be true at all, neither does Patrick. But as Patrick said, it should be because it makes a great story. Though the Hemingways trusted Renee's opinion, Colette and her husband, Sean, did have some reservations. Both to uh, Sean, who works in a museum, and I as an art historian. It was disconcerting a bit in the affidavit that he was working from a photograph of the piece, because that always takes it down a few notches. The fact that he was looking at a printed photo of the piece instead of the real piece was a red flag for a scholar like Colette. She wanted to see the piece herself. So we sent her digital high-resolution photos so she could see it with an art historian's perspective. Her review started out kind of promising. She confirmed that Picasso was in fact working on ceramics at the time he may have given this gift to Hemingway. Picasso started manufacturing a number of tiles, 1946 into the 50s. But the majority of these took inspiration from works of art from classical antiquity and mythology. And the colors used were predominantly those that reflected Greek and Roman vases. The majority of Picasso's ceramics look like they've been painted with wide brushstrokes and then sealed with a clear glaze. They're earthy looking. Fred and Betty have been colored by multiple different glazes. And it's saturated in color. I'll say this, it's, it doesn't look like anything that I have seen at the Picasso museums. So basically, Colette was able to believe Renee's assertion that Fred and Betty was in fact housed at the Finca. She just couldn't say for certain that this was a real Picasso. We got close. But that's as far as Colette was willing to get with us. You have to be very careful as a curator what you evaluate, for what reasons you're evaluating it. And this, as I understand, is quite a story behind it. So I would advise going to Sotheby's in one of the major auction houses. That's usually where we send people. And that's just what we'll do. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com
Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So Steve had been doing all this groundwork to establish the provenance. He shared it with Joe Flood to set him up for a great story and set himself up for a great sale. So I asked Joe what it was like when he got to Art Basel, this bougie, high-art extravaganza with a guy like Steve. So, you know, the road trip sort of petered out and it all just kind of didn't come together, which really kind of became the story of the next few years. Joe told me that they never made it to Art Basel, so they couldn't write a story with a happy ending, with Steve finally selling the piece at a high-profile art fair. But Joe still felt like there was a story. He pitched the story to a number of magazines. Some of them tried to rip him off. Others just didn't have the budget to pay him. Then I ended up talking to an editor at Details Magazine, and we were a go. We signed a contract. It wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough to where I would make back, you know, most of the money I'd, you know, spent researching the piece. Two days later, I got an email from that editor saying, hey, don't know if you saw the news, but I guess we can't do this story. Uh, really sorry. They didn't really explain why. And I thought that was weird and Googled it. And lo and behold, a day or two after I'd signed this contract with Details Magazine, Details Magazine officially no longer existed. It was shut down like two days later. But Joe had another route. He figured he could write a book recounting Steve's life and Fred and Betty. It would include lush chapters drawing from the 1920s in Gertrude Stein's Paris Salon the 1950s in Castro's Cuba, and the 1980s in Neon, Miami. But unfortunately, the biggest obstacle with that deal was Steve. He got into arguments with my agent and was saying offensive things and was like saying how, you know, if he was going to participate, he needed, you know, 50 grand, 100 grand up front. And you know, didn't understand the idea that this is not how this works in the journalism world. You know, you don't, uh, you don't pay your subjects. But according to Steve, that's not how money worked. Remember, he's used to criminal markets, where cash dries up just as fast as it flows. Joe remembered something that Steve's friend, Dennis Doderer, told him up in Iowa. Steve thought every business transaction was a cocaine deal. If you've got a trunk load of cocaine, it will get sold. You name a price, cash and carry, you know, that's the way it works. Because that's not how, you know, things work in the legitimate business world. And so he just didn't want to do the deal without, you know, a lot of cash on the table. That was certainly not anything I was able to provide either, you know, sort of ethically, journalistically, or even just physically. You know, I think I must have spent like about half of my net worth at this time <laughs> traveling around the country and doing all this research. Joe wondered if, maybe subconsciously, Steve was self-sabotaging. With, with the piece itself, he would get so close to, to selling it, and then he would sour the deal somehow. 
Sometimes he'd ask for stacks of cash right away. But I think a lot of it was just him, you know, kind of screwing up the deal almost on purpose or subconsciously because, you know, if he sold his stories, if he sold the piece, I don't know if he really knew what he had left anymore. I think that scared him. Fred and Betty and the story behind them were priceless to Steve. And when something's priceless, there's never an offer high enough. Maybe the thing that scared Steve more than never cashing in was a deal that would actually come through, and then the adventure would end. So yeah, it was, you know, there was this real sense that, yeah, for me, that this story was just sort of cursed, you know? It's like it, everyone had touched it, something went wrong. I wasn't ready to give up. My producer, Pallavi, got access to a database of Picasso works. It's called the Online Picasso Project. You need a password to get in from the website's administrator, Enrique Malin. It's not an official catalog raisonné, which is a comprehensive listing of an artist's known body of work. But it does have hundreds of listed pieces, and it's recommended by a few high-profile Picasso experts. We figured we could use it to look for pieces that might be similar in style to Fred and Betty. In the search, we can put in keywords that are in the French title. We know that this thing is like a man and a woman, right? That's like why it's been called Fred and Betty over and over again. So she searched for man and woman in French. Right away, Pallavi noticed that something was wrong. One thing that I'm really noticing is just like, every woman is naked. Every single thing on this page is like, boobs and vagina. But like the ceramic that we're looking at, like, she has like a very high collar and she's just like, she's very dressed. The poses that we have of a man and a woman by Picasso, especially his most famous ones, are her on recline with her like, like completely naked, him behind her kind of holding her and her like legs up. I can't believe that that's the thing that like is convincing me that this might not be like a real Picasso is just that she's clothed. But then, Pallavi had a thought. And I, I kind of figured maybe, maybe Betty isn't a woman, maybe she's a girl. This whole time, we'd been looking at this piece through Steve's interpretation of it. We saw it through Joe's eyes. We saw it through Stevie's eyes. These men wondered about the provenance and the value. But they never thought further about what this piece of art might mean. It's a failure of imagination, on their part and ours. So, like, the idea that Betty could actually be a little girl, like, that, that kind of spiraled into this thing where I'm just like, why, do, why are we even assuming gender on either one of these figures? Why is Fred a man and why is Betty a, a girl or a woman? Oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't think of that. None of us did. I thought back to that moment when Steve brought the piece out to Joe Flood and pointed at a yellow rectangle on the figure he dubbed Fred. The rectangle he insisted was a penis. And no one questioned him. Pallavi typed a French word into the search bar. 
mère, mother. A few dozen works showed up, but one caught her eye. It's this piece from January 1951. Picasso painted it in his home in Valeries, France. It's of a mother and two children, and it's called Maternité à l'Orange. The colors are bright and reflect Picasso's cubist work. The mother is in profile, but her children have distorted two-dimensional faces. They reminded us of Fred and Betty. You have the two-tone mother's face that does exist in our potential mother. You have that triangular block that's like as a neck. You have the striations in the hair, which was a common motif of Picasso's. The painting was sold by Sotheby's in 2002. They documented it in their catalog. The piece is apparently of Francois Gillot, his mistress at the time, who was like 40 years his junior, and her two kids, Paloma and Claude. Around this time, Picasso had done a number of works depicting Francois with Claude and Paloma. But this particular painting caught Pallavi's eye for a very specific reason. She told me to look in the hands of the mother, who was passing an orange to her daughter. That felt familiar. I looked back at a picture of Fred and Betty. There's the orange. Look at the orange. Okay, so you noticed it too. (laughs) Floating above Fred's hand is an orange circle, just like the one in the painting. For me, I went from literally being like, this is not a Picasso, to being like, oh my God, maybe it is. With all we've learned so far, it feels like the piece could be a Picasso after all. But if it is, and if Hemingway had received it as a gift, why would he give it away? That's at least a like $2 million gift. If you care a little bit about money and a little bit about like your estate, a Picasso is a really big thing to give away. But as I sat with the question, a familiar idea crept up in the back of my mind. One of the things people will do when when they are feeling like they might, you know, take their own life, you know, die by suicide, whatever, is that they'll give stuff away. Like, my dad gave me all of his cameras shortly before he died. It's a thing people do, like leaving your affairs in order, entrusting loved ones with your most prized possessions, distributing small legacies. And I know that whatever, I'm probably like reading more into this, but you know, the idea that he would give a very important piece away to a person who had become a really good friend. I like, I, I don't know, it makes, me, it makes me cry. I don't know, I've gotten very invested in this idea. After two world wars, multiple failed romances, and that fateful plane crash on safari, Hemingway was in constant pain. If our timing is right, Hemingway would have given Fred and Betty to his friend Armando only a few years before he died by suicide. If we're right, the figures in the ceramic aren't Fred and Betty. They're Francois and Paloma, a mother and her daughter. Picasso made it with love. He gave it to Hemingway, one of the only artists he considered a peer, who then gave it away, with love, 
to a dear friend. All that love and respect lives on in Fred and Betty. Para siempre. Next time on Hemingway's Picasso. I started experimenting with psychedelics uh, in middle school, like around seventh grade. I like started hearing things in that house that I couldn't distinguish what a dream was or what was real. I started to wake up in Miami and then wake up in New York. I brought a little life into his life, you know? Did you know it's like outlaw country? Fuck yeah! People were worried about me already, but then I flatlined twice. Yeah, I almost died. So I said, well, you're going to jail. I'm going to college. <laughs> Found out my dad had cancer one night. It was like midnight. I uh, literally took like an eighth of mushrooms and I just started traveling east. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotamasu. Associate producer is India Whitkin. Editor is Lizzie Jacobs. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer is Sam Baer. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood. Executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick Katz.